Ah, hello there. Servus. My name is Haishan Wade, and you're listening to This Week in Geopolitics, where we take a look at the events of yesterday and detail how they paint the geopolitical realities of today. Now, what do I got for you today? Well, today we're going to talk about Xi's visit to Russia. We're going to cover some of the things they pledged to do together. We're going to talk about the recent U.S. airstrikes in Syria. And then we're going to talk about a recent agreement from EU nations for the joint purchasing of ammunition for Ukraine. All of that and more coming up. Alrighty, let's get into the rapid fire news. So, we have attempts at judicial reform in Israel sparking mass unrest. Flights have been canceled, and there have been accusations of corruption levied against the uh, new but really old new prime minister of Israel, Benjamin Netanyahu. And the essentially the, the protests have put the country on a de facto lockdown right now. So we'll see what the Palestinians do about this. We'll see how Israel responds to this. We'll see what Israel's neighbors say. And we'll see what comes of this. So there's that. We have six people killed in a mass shooting, I believe, today. I believe it was today. In the Covenant Presbyterian Church, the Covenant School in Nashville, Tennessee. Six people killed. Three of them were children from the school, and the other three were adults. The shooter was taken down by a police officer who arrived later on in the scene. And this is just another mess. And I say just another, as if this is just some something to casually gloss over. But it's a tragedy. And unfortunately, there are people in our country who will use this tragedy to try to push authoritarianism, which is gun control. They're going to try to do that. But again, like I say, every time there is a mass shooting incident like this, and I, I guess it's a, a bit of an exception since it's in a, a school, so it would really only be the adults in the school who would be able to do this. But when you have these mass shooting situations, where you have this one shooter who comes in and they're just given free reign over the entire crowd because they're the only person with a gun. I ask you to imagine how differently these situations would go if the people these shooters were shooting at could shoot them back and how fast these situations would be put down, how fast these shooters would be put down by would-be victims and how many people, how many lives we could save. That's my perspective on mass shootings. And with how rampant we're just having them running in our country, we need a more armed population. The, we have to even the odds for the regular law-abiding citizens. Like, this can't keep happening. We can't keep talking about removing the guns, removing the guns, removing the guns when removing the guns doesn't solve the problem. We need, we need a well-armed population, an armed society is a polite society. No, we did not have mass shootings like this back in the day. This is, this is a, a, a relatively new development. This is, this is something we got in the, the mid to late 1900s. This was not something that was common even in the 1800s. In the late 1800s, when you had a population of nearly 100 million people, people living in cities, lots of people who own guns. 
and we did not have mass shootings like this. So there's something wrong with the culture, not the gun. But until we can figure out, well, not until, but since we're having issues figuring out the culture side of this, we just have to arm the population so that they can defend themselves from these people. You never know when this stuff is going to strike. But that's the mass shooting in Tennessee. We have the Biden administration threatening sanctions against Uganda for their recent banning. And this is actual legislation in Uganda now. Their banning of homosexuality in Uganda. It became a meme overnight. But here we here again, we have cancel culture as a foreign policy. And here you can actually see it in exactly the light that I've been painting, the, the sanctions weapon. It is literally cancel culture as a foreign policy. And you can see that clear as day here, where it's not just, oh, this country that we don't like, they're, they're, they're so evil, we're, we have to put sanctions on them because we have to help the people over there. You, If you don't sanction this country, you're condoning their actions. See, that's how it usually gets painted when you're doing sanctions against countries like Russia or China. But here, with Uganda, Uganda didn't do anything evil. They banned homosexuality. That is a cultural difference. And here we are trying to sanction them. We're trying to impose cancel culture onto their society. We are trying to cancel them. And so you can see it in exactly the light that I've been painting these sanctions. It's cancel culture as a foreign policy. I don't think we should be doing it. That goes without saying. I hate sanctions. I think if you don't like some other country, if you don't like what they're doing, you just leave them alone. I don't, I don't understand what's hard to understand about that. I'll never understand why we continue going with these sanctions. But what I will say is that as the, the dollar is dethroned from its position as the world reserve currency, which is something else in the modern world we don't need, quite frankly, but as the dollar is removed from its position as the global reserve currency, our ability to even do these types of things will be sharply reduced. I'll just say that much. But uh, then we have the ICC indicting Putin uh, from Russia, the, the obviously the president of Russia. The, the, the ICC, the International Criminal Court, has indicted Putin for war crimes. But the funny thing about this is neither Russia nor the United States are signatories of this court. So... He, the Russians, even if they wanted to, don't don't have not ceded the legal authority to this court to hand them to hand over Putin to them. And the the greater irony is that were Putin to come to the United States, we would not have the legal authority to arrest him and hand him over to the court because we are also not a signatory of this. Now, granted, I don't want us to be anyway. I think, excuse me. I think we'd be better off just leaving the world alone. Like, and I am way in the minority on a lot of the, the issues like this. Like, again, you're you're listening to the isolationist in chief here. Like, but I, I'm the let's get out of the UN guy. <laughs> but yes, I, I don't believe we should be conceding any of our sovereignty to some international institution, even if that institution has good aims and intentions that's just not something i am willing to consent to but it this was a, a very funny situation uh, that they would indict putin in the first place even though they have no jurisdiction in russia 
or the United States. And it was likely the United States that pressured them into doing this in the first place. So that it's just a whole handful of ironies in a single situation. But it also points to the double standard here. Like, we're going to indict Putin for war crimes over this, but not a single U.S. president. And this is something that many leftist commentators were very quick to point out, by the way, (laughs) that not a single U.S. president was ever indicted by this court, even though we are notorious for killing civilians in countries that we invade. And we are notorious for invading people, period. Like, that's that is... America's whole reputation over the last 20 years is just invading people for their oil. That's been our reputation. And it's an earned one. It's not one I like, and it's not one we need to have. But it's an earned reputation, because that's the type of thing we've been up to for the past 20 years. And not a single U.S. president has ever been indicted. So how is it now when that Russia and their president is being indicted, when if you look at the casualties in this war, it is astonishing in the sense that this is the first war since world war one we have not seen this development since world war one where more military have died from the war than civilians world war one was the last war that that happened every war after that has been just a mass slaughter of civilians and regular people every other large event that resulted in the deaths of people were deaths of civilians, which includes all of our wars of choice in the Middle East. Our presidents who facilitated that don't get charged, but Putin, who breaks the trend, this nearly, well, actually over a century-long trend, because World War I was 1914 to 1918. It's 2022 that this that Russia's intervention here began. That's well over a century. Russia's war in Ukraine breaks the trend of mass slaughter of civilians in these wars and only targeting the military. And yet Putin is the one charged with for war crimes. So again, you can see where the biases lie here. And that's not a justification of Russia's war, even though you already know my position, which is that I, after looking at the context here, can see that the war didn't come out of nowhere. If anybody has a just cause for war, it would be the Russians. They were the only ones who lived up to their agreements with the Minsk Accords. But a very interesting set of uh, coincidences with this ICC indictment of Putin. We have the transitional president, General Mohammad Idris Deby uh, Itno, uh, that's his full name, pardoning 380 people who were sentenced to death. And this is the transitional president of Chad. Uh, I forgot to mention Chad. And this is 380 people who were sentenced to death for being mercenaries, uh, for assaulting the head of state, for acts of terrorism, and for recruitment of child soldiers. Uh, So not exactly the best charges, but I suppose this interim leader is just trying to quell the tensions by giving these people, you know, by letting them go instead of trying to start a new fight at a time when you know he doesn't exactly have the ground under his feet as a transitional leader so it seems in line with something u.s presidents would have done like say in the late 1700s or early 1800s with incidents like that 
but a very interesting story nonetheless. You have back in the United States, you have 23 people killed from a recent tornado in Mississippi uh, disaster. And uh, we were a few months out from hurricane season. So, you know, we're, we're safe for now, but the tornadoes are always lurking, They're always lurking. America's wilderness never misses a beat to try to strike back at us for taming it, but it cannot get its freedom back because it's ours. But uh, morning, and my heart goes out, the people of Mississippi for getting hit with this tornado, and I hope a speedy recovery for those who were injured, because I, I just counted the number of killed, but there are undoubtedly people who were injured in this. You have Belarus approving the positioning of Russian nuclear weapons in their country. And this is part of a larger trend we've been watching over the past few years where Belarus and Russia have just continually integrated their militaries with one another to the point where you have joint Belarusian units, uh, Belarusian and Russian units, where it's it's not like one Belarusian unit and one Russian unit, but they're under the command. No, it's a single unit comprised of soldiers from both Belarus and Russia. A truly merged army is what we're witnessing develop in Belarus as the Union state continues to advance. Now, these weapons, however, will remain still under Russian control, but granted, when you have a Union state between Belarus and Russia, tomato-tomato, like, it's there isn't going to be too much of a difference in the not too distant future because Belarus and Russia are going to become the same country. <laughs> Quite frankly, Russia and Ukraine are going to become the same country as well. But that still remains to be seen, although I'm pretty sure that that's where this is going to end. And speaking of Ukraine, we have their spring offensive growing near and more and more talk about it is surfacing and it's really being broadcasted. They're telling us where it's going to happen what the objective is, what the aim is. They're trying to take back Crimea. They want to get all the way to the Sea of Azov. Um, that's not going to happen, but it's nice of you to tell us that, says the Russians. <laughs> but yeah, we are getting more and more talk of this. It, the weather is starting to get nicer, at least over here where I'm living. So it, yeah, I imagine this offense had taken place sometime in what, maybe May or June maybe May or June, you know, when we can certify that it'll be warm. Because with the end of spring does tend to come rain, and Ukraine and Russia in general, have, they have issues with mud. So the mud might get in the way as well, so you might have to wait until perhaps the summer for this offensive. And, and that's just me speculating here. I don't know exact. I don't know too much the details on the weather patterns in Ukraine during that during this upcoming time of year, but when the ground is solid, they they would be smart to wait until the ground is solid to make this offensive if they're going to do it, and it seems like they're just being pressured into doing it, uh, like kids pressuring their friends into jumping off the bridge. That's what it looks like is happening here, and the Ukrainians are being swept along with this, to their own detriment, mind you, because... I've brought up in the last time I talked about this spring offensive, when I talked about it in more detail, they're just going to end up exhausting the manpower reserves that they have. They're going to blow through the equipment that they have, that they're trying to keep in reserve for either to prolong their defensive abilities by continuing to fight the war 
or preserving to fight this offensive. This offensive is going to fail. It's not going to achieve. At least that's my opinion, right? They, they could surprise me. They could. They could. Uh, either that or the Russians will surprise me by pulling back. But I think about a solid 8 out of 10 times, I'll give them 2, you know, a solid 8 out of 10 times, they're not going to be successful with this offensive. It's just going to be a waste of resources that are already running low. Like, we're getting these complaints from the news and the governments and of various Western countries that Ukraine needs more ammunition. They need more ammunition. So the ammunition shortage that they've been telling us that Russia's been having for almost a year now has hit Ukraine. We've been talking about it for a few weeks, but it seems that with all this panic being whipped up, that that issue has enlarged greatly. Like we went from dealing with Ukraine firing five to 8,000 shells a day to the rumor now is that they're firing three to three to five thousand shells a day and i meant five to eight thousand in case i didn't put the thousand there that's a reduction a pretty large reduction at that and that's not going to help you compete three thousand shells a day if that's what they're really at and if they're even below that like we don't necessarily know exactly what the numbers are going to be but if you if your numbers keep falling off like this then there's just no way you can even compete with the numbers that Russia's putting up. Russia's putting up, and my personal estimate here is 25,000 because the range is 20 to 40,000 shells a day. 20 to 40,000 artillery shells a day. And the vast majority of casualties in this war are coming from artillery, which means that the artillery and the amount of shells you're able to put up is your ability to kill the enemy. At, at this current stage in the war, given the current, you know, the current flavor of the fighting, if you will, artillery is how you kill the enemy right now. Perhaps that will change in the future. But as of right now, when you're dealing with World War One, a uh, literal redux of World War One, it's the artillery, baby. And the Russians have the artillery and they have the ammunition. We've been being told Russia's been running out of ammunition this entire time. But Ukraine is now running out, and they're scrambling to catch up. They're scrambling to adjust to this new reality. And you can even see that with the news now, not just bringing up the the shortage that Ukraine has, but they're also now talking about the 100,000 dead Ukrainians. That number has been circulating the news a whole lot lately. But if you remember, Ukraine was at 100,000 dead last November. In fact, they were at over 100,000 dead last November, according to Ursula von der Leyen. So what what it seems like to me is that you have these politicians swept along in the hype and our own propaganda press now trying to play catch up. They're, They're trying to get the narrative to start catching up to reality because the reality and the narrative that they've been selling us on has diverged so much so that it's becoming irreconcilable. Now they have to start changing up the narrative to more closely match reality. And now at this point in the war, they're starting to say, oh, 100,000 Ukrainians are dead. I wouldn't be surprised if that number starts to be revised upwards further in the coming weeks and months because they you can't just sit at 100,000. 
when you were at when we were actually at that number months ago back in november you're talking december january february we're almost at, we're at the end of march now that's four months they have four months of ukrainian casualties to catch up on i would not be surprised if in the next few months and weeks we start to hear two hundred thousand, and then they'll be closer but we're in the midst of that as well we also hear from zelensky about this this offensive and he's actually against the offensive if you can believe it uh, for the longest time he's been the the offensive guy he's been the attack 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 guy the cult of the offensive has been strong with him but here in an interview with yomuri uh, shimbun he said quote we can't start yet we can't send our brave soldiers to the front line without tanks, artillery, long-range rockets, etc. That's what Zelensky said. He said, we are waiting for ammunition to arrive from our partners, which hints at Zelensky coming this close to acknowledging the ammunition shortage himself. This close. So, I don't see how they're going to do this offensive. And I certainly don't see how this offensive is going to be successful. I think we're just going to watch them send thousands of men, potentially tens of thousands, to a slaughter that we all know that they will not survive. And at that point, we might see an even larger mutiny in the Ukrainian army than the small-scale mutinies we've been seeing with the fighting around Bakhmut, where units just up and leave because they have refused to consent to a four-hour life expectancy in that city. So we're, we're starting to see the situation unravel and we'll get into, and uh, one of the other stories we'll cover today, will sort of tie into that and why that's important, but that is the rapid fire, the not so rapid fire. And we'll get into the meat of this episode in just a moment. Alrighty. Now we can get into the meat of today's episode. And so we'll start with Xi's visit to Russia. Now I I'll admit, I expected some more like solid things to come from this. You know, like solid deals and agreements, but I suppose that what we did end up getting, because I did a whole lot of speculation last time, but we did get some inf- uh, some very important bits of information, we'll, and we'll start with Russia and China agreeing to didn't have their energy deals denominated in Chinese yuan. I spent a good deal of last bits, last episodes, last episodes, I spent a good bit of last episode talking about the potential for a BRICS currency or potentially even currency denominated in yuan or whether or not they would even go for a sort of reserve currency of a a single nation or if they would just do trade in local currencies which technically is still what's happening here uh, because yuan is China's currency and we won't really see a sort of a reserve currency status of the yuan until we see countries who are not China agree to do trade with each other in yuan so technically this is still just them doing trade in local currencies and china happens to be the larger economy so you know they're the ones buying the product anyway so doing deals in yuan is what we're seeing here but uh, i said that it was more of uh, vague the agreements and deals we got out of this but and you'll see what i mean by that as we go on but again these are rather important so We'll start with the fact that they agreed to reaffirm their compliance with the Treaty of Good Neighborliness, Friendship, and Cooperation between the People's Republic of China 
and the Russian Federation, both the 2000 edition of that and as well as the 2020 edition of that treaty because they were two separate, well, not separate, but two separate um, ratifications of the treaty and agreements to reaffirm compliance with that treaty. So they've agreed to continue that moving forward, and that was the first thing they did. They also agreed to give each other firm support in safeguarding core interests, which primarily regard to issues of sovereignty, territorial integrity, uh, think Ukraine, Taiwan, security, definitely Ukraine and Taiwan and the South China Sea and NATO and U.S. alliance building. And they also agreed to promote the the core interests of each other regarding development. So that's primarily, uh, that's all together, that's them agreeing to support each other in the core interests, which they define as sovereignty, territorial integrity, security, and development. So I'm assuming that means economic development. They're not going to, they're going to back each other up if someone comes along and tries to sabotage the, the other's economy, which we can observe right now with our economic war against Russia and how China has covered Russia's flanks diplomatically. So you can, you can see that that is tangible already, but so now that they've just essentially put that into words with this latest agreement, they agreed to uphold the principles of mutual benefit, deepen and expand their political, not their political, their practical cooperation and achieve common development and prosperity to better benefit the Chinese and Russian peoples. So essentially, they're agreeing to continue to do business with one another and work with one another on large transnational infrastructure projects. So essentially the Belt and Road, but not just the Belt and Road, but infrastructure projects between Russia and China themselves and Chinese investment in Russian infrastructure in Russia, Russian investment in Chinese infrastructure, things of that nature. You know, they're, they're going to work together to advance their own countries in a way that benefits the two of them, mutual benefit. And essentially, they're going to continue to do trade. And they have effectively, with this, made each other the favored nation when they're in their trading. So that's an important development here. Again, a tangible that we can already see, but is put into words. And now that it is put into words, certain other actions might be acted upon because of this. The two also agreed to promote this mutual friendship that they have going on within the general public of their respective countries. And this is meant to create the public opinion foundation, which will help maintain the friendship for generations. And these are in their words. They want this friendship to continue for generations, which it likely will. Because when you look at the broader history of the Russians and the Chinese, you can see that their history is that while it is marked with the occasional border war, it is generally a neutral to positive relation, irrespective of the dynasty in China, irrespective of who the czar was, and irrespective of the ideologies involved. So this is just a very natural, you know, relationship that they have that they are now affirming to. They're going to, and what what they're affirming to is that they're going to try to stay on the positive end of that spectrum between neutral to positive. They're going to try to stay on the positive end for as long as they can. They'll undoubtedly have their low points at some point in the future, but I see a lot of people 
in the United States who who say who still say that Russia and China are not natural allies. They actually hate each other. Well, that's just not historically accurate, and it's not accurate for the moment either. Like, people, I don't know what it is, but people's historical depth doesn't go much farther back than World War II. So that, the history that they're referring to when they say things like that is obviously the Cold War with the Sino-Soviet split, where, yes, it would look to an outside observer who wasn't paying attention that the two countries, even when they're com- they're both communists, they hate each other. But that's really more of a, a problem inherent in communism and what the definition of real communism actually is and real socialism. It's more that and the general disagreements between where exactly the border is that China and Russia have from time to time. It's more that than any natural animosity and hatred and natural enemy status that the two would share because, well, they just don't have that. It's just not there. Like, the Chinese have, when you look at the borders of China throughout the ages, they rarely have inhabited the land that marks Russia's Far East. Rarely. Like, with the exception of, obviously, Vladivostok and Khabarovsk, you know, that area... The Chinese usually don't inhabit lands that far north of their current border. Like, they had Mongolia at one point, but they didn't go any farther than that. And they've been there for thousands of years before even the Russians came along, uh, when the Russians made their way to the Pacific in the 1700s. Like, so while they have disagreements from time to time on where exactly the border is, or where exactly the border should be, they generally get along because the Russians live where the Chinese choose not to. So it's there is no like natural enemy ship here. It just doesn't exist. But that's what's going on in the minds of other people who entertain rather weird ideas of foreign policy and who can't accept. They're deep in the denial phase about what we're witnessing here, which is the emergence of these two countries, which one of which was written off as a gas station masquerading as a country, these two countries who were finding out were a lot stronger than we thought they were and so the response of the people who did the underestimating is denial. But uh, denial and then retreating into fantasy, which is that Russia and China hate each other and they're natural enemies. That is not true, objectively. But, and again, you can see that with these agreements, because a lot of these agreements are, while vague, were, are still tangible, and you can see them, because these agreements are really just putting into words what we've already witnessed. This strategic partnership is something that was already happening. It's just been given a name, it's just been given words on paper to, you know, clarify what exactly it is. But they're trying to promote this mutual friendship in the general public, China and Russia, so they can continue this relation on the positive end of the spectrum between neutral to positive, and they will likely be successful because that's, you know, Russia's relationship with China and China's relationship with Russia usually doesn't veer too far off from neutral at worst. It usually doesn't. But that they also agreed, China and Russia agreed, to advance and this is the big deal here, 
they agreed to advance the multipolarization of the world. Here's the big one. And this is the big one. They, they agreed to the multipolarization of the world to advance that, to advance economic globalization. So think Belt and Road, think rapid advances in Russian energy projects around the world. And they agreed to advance the democratization of international relations. So essentially, they're trying to dethrone the West from its position of de facto hegemony over the international community. Which is a hegemony itself led by the United States, because let's be honest, if the United States ever, for whatever reason, went home, the rest of the West would be left ass out in the wind and wouldn't be able to do jack diddly or squat about anything that any other country did. It just wouldn't be there. But you can also look at France and their influence in West Africa. You can look at uh, Britain and their attempts at containing China alongside the United States. You can you can look at certain other instances where you can apply this multipolarization to in a way that you could paint as being negative to the West, because you know the West is panicked about this. And it is clear that multipolarization, the in the you know expansionist aim of it, is to replace the West. Like the West is welcome to join, Europe, the Anglosphere, United States, they're all welcome to join. And I'm of the opinion the United States would be would be better off as a part of the multipolar world. Isolationist America fits perfectly with the multipolar world anyway. If we went home a multipolar world order would have had to have sprung up in our place anyway. So the fact that the multipolar world has come first, well, that just means we have an excuse to go home. We have the perfect opportunity to go home. Now, no one wants to take it. All these people who said that they didn't want to be the world's police, when they're presented with the opportunity to go home, are yet again refusing to go home. And so we continue on with this mess. But you can, the multipolarization of the world is clearly aimed at pushing us out of all these region in these regions and places that we pretend to have interest in. So that's the big thing here. That's the big thing here. And again, yet again, you can see that it's tangible. It's something that was already happening that they're now putting into words. I mean, just look at the deal between uh, Arabia and Iran that was brokered by China. That is multipolarization at its finest. Just look at the deal that Russia reached with Turkey which effectively carved Turkey out from U.S. Uh, sphere of influence. Turkey is going to become a gas hub, but Turkey doesn't have natural gas. So who are they becoming a gas hub for? It's Russia. Multipolarity. It is the multipolar world. And India is all in. Well, they're, they're getting close to being all in. Because when you look at how Europe and the United States treat India because India won't go along with them on Ukraine, well, why would India? Why would they? Ukraine is not their country. That's not their problem. See, India, a country that lives much closer to Ukraine than the United States does, they understand that that's not their problem, and that's not their war, and that they, in fact, do not need to be involved or have a role in it but we are plagued with the idea that we do. And we live farther away. We have an entire ocean between us and the continent that Ukraine is on, let alone the distance between 
France and the westernmost border of Ukraine. Like, Ukraine is 4,000 miles away from us. There is no need for us to be involved over there. India is closer, and it's not their problem. So there, as we continue pressuring all these countries to try to go along with us on this endeavor, and they say no, and then we threaten them with sanctions, well, nobody likes being canceled. So the inevitable result of that, and this is the, the, uh, the circular firing squad that is the sanctions policy, the inevitable result of us acting an ass on the international stage is that everyone is going to willingly go along with the Belt and Road. They're going to willingly go along with multipolarization, even if they don't like some of the other countries who are also going along with it. Like, it's this insanity is just going to continue to pronounce the multipolarization of the world, and now you have a stated aim of Russia and China to advance multipolarization. And the more we try to fight back against it by bullying other countries, the more we're just going to end up, you know, perpetuating it. Economic globalization, so think more trade, probably more trade in local currencies when we're talking about that, so that countries can't, again, be canceled by some busybody in the United States or Europe. And this is what we're looking at, the democratization of international relations. So essentially allowing countries to interface with each other in a more direct manner without the threat of being sanctioned or blackmailed by the United States. And unfortunately, that's these are the actions that our government gets up to. We shouldn't, but it's the things that we do. And so now you have an alternative to this system that we have been perpetuating. And because of the way we act and the way we behave with other countries and the way we interact with them, they are willingly going over to this new system. That's, that's what's happened. So you have Russia, prom- Russia and China promising to advance multipolarization. And they also seek to promote the development of global governance in what they consider be, to be a more just and reasonable direction. So that might be referring to the UN. It might be. Or could be referring to governance in general around the world. Uh Now, either one of those are still shots fired across the bow at the United States, because the United States likes to stonewall on a lot of Russian and and Chinese and, uh, uh, well, not just Russian and Chinese, but a lot of other countries' proposals, when those proposals don't suit the United States and Europe, like the denunciation of Nazism, which, for whatever reason, the United States doesn't go along with. The Russians keep putting it out there to denounce Nazism, and for whatever reason, the United States keeps refusing to go along with that, which is strange, very strange, but it could be referring to the UN, or it could be referring to governance in general, where, again, it would be a shot across the bow to the United States, because we keep trying to overthrow people's governance. So, either way that goes, it's a shot fired at us, and they say a more just and reasonable direction, a.k.a., the people living in said country get to decide the future of said country, not some bum in a three-letter agency in the United States. So, Russia and China are agreeing, uh, and this is, I believe, the the last few sets of agreements we have here before I sort of dissect it a little bit. 
Russia and China have agreed to continue their practical cooperation in civil aviation, manufacturing, automobile manufacturing, shipbuilding, metallurgy, and other common industries. So that's essentially continuing to build and reindustrialize Russia and to continue advancing industrialization in China, but reindustrializing Russia as well. And they're dabbling in the necessary industries for that aviation, shipbuilding, automobiles. So land, air, and sea travel, so you can, which enables you to move your goods across your own country and to other countries as well. So, you know, things again that we've seen the Russians and Chinese doing, and they're now being put on, uh, on paper, to clarify what exactly Russia and China's relationship is. They also they call for nuclear non-proliferation, and for the signatories of the joint statement of leaders of the joint statement of the leaders of the five nuclear weapon states on the prevention of nuclear war and avoidance of an arms race they called on the signatories of that to essentially reaffirm the commitment and they called for non-proliferation from those signatories and as a side note here as a side note here uh, right before i really get into this you would not believe how difficult it was and i'm talking unnecessary levels of difficult how difficult it was just to get that relatively vague bit of info i gave you like i swear every article every article i read there were very few that gave me some substance it was just always just some guy's opinion about who putin and xi were as people and it had nothing to do with the meeting it had nothing to do with what china and russia were building it had nothing to do with the agreements that they made. And it was just, uh, I don't know if I want to say infuriating or frustrating. I think frustrating is the better word. But it's like, come on now. Is this news? You're just going to give me an opinion and pretend that it's a, a news story? Like, get away from me. <laughs> get away from me. But yeah, so you see what I mean when I say that the agreements that they reached here were pretty vague. We might get some more concrete ones uh, coming out in the news, you know, publicly later on. But for the time being, we have some rather vague but still tangible statements to go off of. Like, again, I say tangible because a lot of these statements and agreements that they agreed to go along with were things that Russia and China were already doing together. But they just, you know, put on, put into words, essentially. So, they have, the meeting seems to me to have been more of a, a clarification of what exactly they're going to be doing and what exactly this, this strategic partnership is going to look like and what exactly this strategic partnership entails. And so that's sort of uh, what my main takeaway from this was. If I get some more information out of what was in the meeting later on, I'll bring it to you and perhaps it'll be more concrete and, and uh, more impactful. Perhaps I'm missing a good deal of what's in this, but it, it, again, it's, it's still tangible and it's still important, particularly that part about multipolarization. And we also get a, an idea of what they mean by multipolarization. They mean just going off of, the agreements they're making with each other, they're talking about economic development. 
security, national sovereignty, and economic development. That's what these two are talking about when they talk about multipolarization and the removal of foreign influences from other people's countries, which is a promise, even if it's not necessarily, even if it doesn't end up being kept in the end, that is a promise that a lot of other countries are going to sign on for, especially when those countries have been dealing with the United States meddling in their affairs for so long. Like, see, you think Syria is going to turn down an opportunity like this? When we, we have 900 troops in their country that we, we make every excuse in the book not to pull out, you think Syria is going to not accept an offer like this? Do you think they're going to reject the multipolar world in favor of the American-led order? No. No. We, we played a massive role in igniting their civil war to begin with. And then we prolong it. They have no reason to go along with us. They're going to go with the multipolar world. You think Africa is going to go along with us? No. We we funded every, all the wrong guys in Africa since Africa tried to fight for its independence. They're going to go with the multipolar world. And you can already see that with the meetings that they're having with Russia and China and the way that R Russia and Chinese diplomats treat the Africans and how the Africans receive diplomats from Russia and China Versus how they receive fucking Blinken. Ugh. Like, that guy will go to Africa just to lecture the people living there. And they just, they don't have any more patience for that. And no one would. I certainly wouldn't. <laughs> well, you, you're going you're gonna to come over to my country after you created these all these problems with your incessant meddling. Right? You're going to come over here. You don't want to make deals with us. You don't, you don't want to, you don't want to do trade. You don't want to invest in anything. You just want us to be more like you so that we can have the promise of maybe getting a loan from one of your financial institutions. And you're going to charge us massive interest on it? No. Get the hell away from me. I'm going to take the Belt and Road. I'm going to take the multipolar world order. I'm going to take what the Russians are selling. Shoot, I'll take some Wagner. I'll take some Wagner mercenaries. If they're going to clean up these militant groups that you people keep spawning in my country, I'll take some mercenaries, you know, sign me up. Get these people out of my country. That's how the rest of the world is viewing us. Because of the way that we act on the international stage. This multipolarization, which is focused on economic development and essentially national, not, not national security, yeah, security, but really sovereignty. That is a very tantalizing prospect for many, many countries. And now that the Chinese and Russians have clarified what multipolarization will entail, everyone knows exactly what they're going to get. Or at the very least, they, they have something that they're being promised, something concrete that they're being promised. And you have the Belt and Road and Russian infrastructure to back it up, Russian energy infrastructure, to back that up, that they're already building independently of this proclamation. So it's something tangible that you can see that you can get. You can get Russian energy on the cheap. Oh, wow, Turkey's going to be a, a gas hub for Russian natural gas? That means we can, we can start from Turkey and we can get our own pipeline deal. We can get our own cheap energy. Oh, and the Chinese are going to invest in our infrastructure and our industrial plant? Okay, okay, we can take that. If we have cheap energy and good infrastructure, we can industrialize. We can we can build some prosperity for our people. 
Let's do that. Who's going to say no to that? After decades of what we've been doing, which is bombing innocent civilians in the Middle East, who's going to say no to what the Chinese and the Russian vision is for the future? Nobody. Nobody. And you can even see that with a number of countries in the West. You think if Hungary wasn't landlocked... (laughs) You think if Hungary wasn't surrounded by NATO on all sides that they wouldn't go along with the multipolar world order? Give them a few months. Give them about a year or so. Let let them get a border with Russia when Russia annexes all of Ukraine and see how fast they they go for the pipeline deal. (laughs) See how fast they go for the pipeline deal. They they will go for that jugular so fast. And then it's, oh, uh, 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 I don't know what happened. I just, uh, one day I woke up and there was a pipeline. I'm sorry. I have to, no, no, we're not going to sanction the Russians. No, 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 that's, that's not our problem. I can see it now. I can see it. But again, not new things. These are things that we sort of expected. And we will see what becomes of these developments and because, again, what the Chinese and Russians have done is they've laid out the specifics of the vision for this multipolar world. So now there's something solid and concrete that other countries can can either consent or not consent to. And I feel that a lot of them are going to consent. A lot of them are going to consent. And that is the the meeting between Xi and Putin. And now... We can get into the airstrikes that the U.S. did in Syria. So last week, the U.S. did some airstrikes on the militant group or or a number of militant groups in Syria, which the United States accuses of being affiliated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard. Now, this was a bad move. Uh, I'll just start by saying that. Uh, Syria says it's a flagrant violation of their sovereignty, which it is, uh, which is, <laughs> again, who's going to say no to the multipolar world order when this is the things we do, when this is the type of shit we get up to? Who's going to say no to the multipolar world order? Nobody, certainly not Syria. But they say it's a violation of their sovereignty. It is. Joe Biden says in a statement made after the strikes that the United States would respond forcefully to protect our soldiers. But If you want to protect our soldiers, get them out of harm's way. Why put them into a war zone? There was this is Syria. What reason are our troops in Syria? Why would you just plop them down in a country that was in a civil war at the time that you sent in the troops? That's not protecting our troops. That's putting them in harm's way. You can't then complain after what? That's like walking into a firing range, right? You walk down the lane and then into the crossfire between the shooter and the target, and then you're going to complain that you got shot? No, that's that's stupid. That's not... You can't say that you're going to protect yourself v- from anybody who wants to shoot at you if you're going to walk into the places where they're shooting and they're not intending to shoot at you. Like, it, this is ridiculous. He, that, but that's what Joe Biden and a number of these other warmongers are saying. We're going to protect our soldiers, blah, blah, blah. Uh, get our troops out of Syria. But anyway, it, uh, 
I can't stand these people. But what you have here is a deliberate provocation against Iran, which had the potential and kind of still does. We'll see if this escalates, but it had the potential of starting a war between us and Iran. Now, the threat of war between us and Iran is constantly sort of in the mist because of how much we provoke Iran and they don't respond too much in kind. They, they, they respond with a barrage or two of missiles every every now and then, uh, but they usually don't go all in on the war. But with us so heavily invested in Ukraine, well, they might feel that now is a chance to cast off the U.S. yoke. Now, I don't think that they want to do that. But if you're just going to, I mean, if you're just going to keep attacking this country, at some point they have to draw the line with you. Like, it wasn't that long ago, just a few weeks ago, that Israel bombs a drone facility in Iran. That is a blatant act of war. And because we've just become so desensitized to these things, I mean, U.S. naval vessels get into skirmishes with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard in the Persian Gulf on a regular basis. We're just so desensitized to it that the threat of war between us and Iran just is lost on us. We bombed Soleimani, remember? And everyone was talking about World War III back then. Oh, but here we are now when we're bombing people that we feel is associated with the Revolutionary Guard. This is uh, a provocation. Because if it was associated with the Revolutionary Guard. It's a provocation because you're bombing people that the Iranians feel are important enough to back. And if it wasn't affiliated with the Iranian Revolutionary Guard, well, now you're just making shit up. <laughs> well, now you're just making shit up and blaming it on Iran. That's a provocation. Like, it's... When we say, we say these groups are affiliated with Iran's Revolutionary Guard, but here's the thing about that. The Revolutionary Guard is an official part of Iran's government and military. Meaning that had any member of the Guard been present during this attack and been killed, Iran would have a case for war. Not that they are ever short on cases for war against us or Israel for that matter. But had we ended up at war, all 900 of those troops, those soldiers we have in Syria, they would have been an immediate and quite frankly unnecessary danger. And with that recent vote, we just unfortunately witnessed that vote to stay in Syria. With that, with that vote being so recent, we can name names as to who's responsible for this mess when it happens. Because this whole thing has the stark chance of blowing up in our face if we keep pressing like this. And we are in an ammunition shortage. We've given so much to Ukraine, we barely have enough for ourselves. The Iranians don't have that problem. The Russians don't have that problem. If we get into a war with Iran, we're going to get embarrassed. We are going to be embarrassed. It's it's going to be laughable and tragic at the same time. We went all in on Ukraine and got humbled by a country with half our population, Russia. Our entire military alliance, mind you, got humbled by Russia. And then we get into a war with Iran, and they beat our ass too because we're, we're out of ammunition. It doesn't matter how good your military is. When you run out of ammo, it's a wrap. That would be humiliation after humiliation. 
And at that point, what's next? Taiwan? You're gonna you're gonna go defend Taiwan with sticks and stones because you blew through all your ammunition on Ukraine and Iran? That's gonna go well. As if that war was ever gonna go very well for us in the first place. It's not. But this is the danger we we are playing around with constantly with these attacks and provocations on Iran. And for what? For what? What is so important about Iran that we have to go fight them? What's so important about Russia and China, for that damn matter, that we have to go fight them? It, what, China's the number one economy now? Uh, so what? Grow up. When the United States became the largest industrial and economic power in the year 1900, we would not have appreciated other countries like Britain or Germany saying, hey, we need to go fight the United States because they, they're rising and you know that we... It's in our interest to go stop them. Like, we would not have appreciated that shit at all. At fucking all. So why it's okay for us to do that now is beyond me, but it's a bad idea, and it's going to end poorly for us. And I also find it rather convenient that this happens right at the same time we're getting admissions from numerous Western officials that Ukraine is running low on ammunition, and this attack just so happens to coincide at the same time that Ukraine is literally begging for more ammunition from with the West. I mean, just last episode, we talked about there, they wanted uh, another 1 million rounds, and they, they were proposing to the Europeans payment plans. I, I, I mean, uh, schedules for donations you know just give us 250,000 a month 250,000 shells a month and it's all good like the tail wagging the dog doesn't even begin to describe the situation we're in right now like the fact that the ukrainians can sit there with a straight face and make demands of us and i I was one of the i'm always one of the few if not the only but I, i was one of the few if not the only person to bring up how backwards this whole thing is Ukraine needs us, not the other way around, and yet they're bossing us around as though we owed them money. <laughs> they're bossing us around as if they called the shots. Like, what? You're, gonna, you're just going to sit there and demand two, two million more artillery shells out of me? You're, oh, so you're, you're going to give me the payment plan on how much I'm going to send you every month? Man, forget you. <laughs> forget you. Fuck you and your needs. I'll give you what I feel like. And you make do. That's how this is supposed to go. That's how this is supposed to go, if it is to go at all. If we are the ones backing you, you do what we say. That's how this goes. This, It's so backwards. It's, uh. But, yeah, we were literally just talking about this, this payment plan that the, the Ukrainians proposed to the Europeans on how much artillery that the Europeans had to give to Ukraine every month so they could keep up and build up their artillery supplies. The Europeans can't meet it, mind you, and they're, they're not going to get those 250,000 shells a month, and they're certainly not going to get what the Europeans are promising them now. But it, it's just very convenient that this attack on Iranian-backed groups in Syria happens at the same time that we're getting all this bad news about the Ukraine war. Because we're not allowed to have bad news about the Ukraine war because Ukraine's winning the Ukraine war. Why would there ever be bad news? But again, uh, the media is trying to, you know, they're trying to trying to catch up, trying to catch up all the people they've been lying to, you know, sort of 
ease it in that, hey, oh, by the way, Ukraine lost 100,000 men over the course of the war. It has been a whole war. They've been fighting tirelessly for their, for their country. So 100,000, it's, it's you know, believable. When even though they were at 100,000 last November and they're closer to, they're above 200,000 right around now. So, but but you'll you'll probably see that number come out in a few weeks, maybe a few months, and then they'll have to revise it again. And they'll probably use the offensives either from the Ukraine or from Russia to justify the sudden jump in the number so they don't have to so they don't have to admit that they were lying for the past few months but i find it very suspicious that this happens at the same time and to me it hints at the kind of behavior we can expect from our government as the war in ukraine continues and as the situation there deteriorates more war we can expect that we can expect more provocations, not just against Iran, not just against Russia, but against China and maybe even North Korea. Just just remind everyone that they're there. You know, we can expect more crises, uh, both deliberate crises like this one here, like the drone getting taken down in the Black Sea, like uh, another carrier battle group in the South China Sea. Oh, we're going to sail a destroyer through the Taiwan Strait. Oh, look at North Korea on all these missiles. All these things, we can expect all of it. And we can expect the both the manufactured ones and the, the semi-organic ones with these bank failures, which keep happening. Uh, we'll, we can expect that. That's what we can expect. More war, more provocations, and more crisis. And it's all just to keep the public thoroughly distracted away from what's happening in Ukraine and from how badly they have ventured here. Because it's going to end badly, but they can only put it off for so long because I have a feeling that a lot of people are in for a very rude awakening this summer. A very rude awakening. So they can only put it off for so long. They can only distract the public for so long before uh, this the mess that they got us into becomes apparent. The fact the the stalemate in Ukraine allows them to hide it. But when the stalemate goes away and it is replaced with a war of movement again, it there's going to be no hiding it anymore. When the Ukrainian army is can do no more and the Russians just start rolling over them, it's a wrap. No one can hide behind the narrative anymore. The narrative will collapse. The propaganda will be exposed in an instant. And everyone's going to see just how much they were lied to. Everyone's, everyone already knows that the news lies to them. Everyone already knows that the propaganda press is the propaganda press. But what people routinely fail to understand is the extent to which the news is willing to lie to you. People's gonna, people are going to find out very quickly. But the end result of all this, this crisis, all this war, all these provocations, the end result of that is going to be the world rejecting american influence and leadership and oh boy don't threaten me with a good time i can almost fucking taste it the smell of isolationist america the one true america is on the horizon ladies and gentlemen we just have to make it through these incredibly turbulent times to reach it and then we'll finally be able to get back to the real work of industrial economic and social development. 
the things that actually matter to our country, not Taiwan, not Ukraine, not Iran and Israel. Making life, making the lives of our people better is what we should be focusing on. Improving our population and growing our population is what we should be focusing on, not how we're going to go fight other people. That has never been in our interest to do. But I'll leave it there. And lastly, we have the EU signing an agreement for the joint purchasing of ammunition for Ukraine. And this was an idea floated by Kaha Kalas, who is the Prime Minister of Estonia. This idea was floated a month ago, and Hungary's Viktor Orban has announced that his country will not participate in giving Ukraine ammunition, even though he agreed to be a party to this deal. Ah. But let's get into it. Because uh, interestingly, the article I read regarding this admitted to Ukraine having ammunition shortages. So again, the the 100,000 debt figure and the ammunition shortage situation is, be, is just being rolled out to the public. Rolled out to the public. These are things we were talking about f- for months, if not uh, for months or weeks ago. Weeks ago with regards to the ammunition shortage. Months ago with regards to 100,000 Ukrainian dead. So the narrative is playing catch-up. They're trying to compensate for all the lack the the lack of matching up between what they're telling the people and what's actually happening on the ground like it's the reality has veered so far away from what the narrative is that the narrative now has to course correct and get a little bit closer to the reality because between reality and the propaganda the reality will win if you let it get too far away from what you're saying so here again, we can see that. But the EU defense minister and foreign ministers approved a fast-track purchasing procedure for ammunition to be given to Ukraine. The 27 leaders of the individual member states have also agreed to this, uh, as per my previous statement with Viktor Orban. He's not going to give weapons to Ukraine, but he's gone along with this so that it can move forward. And this deal aims to provide 1 million shells to Ukraine over 12 months by having the member states purchase the addition, uh, not the addition, the ammunition from uh, wherever they can get it. And so, given that we've been dealing with the number of shells fired in a day for most of our, uh, for most of our perspective on, you know, the expenditure of artillery, I decided to break down that number. 1 million shells, when you divide it by 12 months... And it's not that this is going to be provided consistently over 12 months. This is they're going to they're promising to give Ukraine a million shells within a period of 12 months. So as far as we are concerned, they can give them nothing until December, and then nothing after that. So this is not a consistent. Oh, we're going to give you this X amount every month. This is yeah, we're going to get you a million uh, when we get to it. So keep that in mind. But when you break it down, 1 million shells, divide that by 12, you get about 83,000 shells a month. Now, that sounds like a lot. But when you break that number down, that's the monthly number. When you break that number down, divided by 30, you get essentially what amounts to an additional 2,800 artillery shells a day which uh, the exact number is actually 2,777, 
But yeah, that's it, it's 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 something. Uh, it's not nothing. It's definitely not nothing. It is significant. It's just it's just Ukraine. The range that Ukraine is firing is anywhere from three thousand shells a day to eight thousand. Now I'm sticking to the five to eight thousand number, but I, I bring up the the fact that they could be three to five thousand because some of my sources, namely the Duran, are saying that they're down to firing three thousand shells a day. I do my damnedest to give the Ukrainians the benefit of the doubt where I can, so I'm going to stick to the five to eight thousand shells a day until a preponderance of evidence forces me to revise that number down, which is undoubtedly where I'm going to have to revise it. But even if they get this 1 million shells spread out evenly over the course of 12 months, you're only talking about being able to fire up to an additional uh, almost 3,000 shells a day, which again is not insignificant. But even if we go with the highest end figure for Ukraine's daily firing, of artillery shells with the 8,000 number, you're only adding, uh, you're only bumping that up to 10,800. Uh, I say only, but that's, that's still half. That's still half of what the Russians are putting up on the low end estimates, which is 20,000 a day. And is one fourth of the higher end estimates of what the Russians are firing, which is 40,000 a day. My personal guesstimate is that they're around 25,000 a day. But it's possible they could be firing even more than that 40,000. I'm just going to stick to the 25,000 because, my God, this is just not a good situation for Ukraine to be in. Like, like, Even if we go off with the higher number, it's still a 2 to 1 ratio in favor of the Russians or a 4 to 1. That's the range that we're still dealing with where Ukraine is still outgunned at least two to one. And you have to factor in that most of this would have to be concentrated around Bakhmut or around one or two areas to be effective, to be able to compete with the Russians. So this, even if they got this all spread out evenly over the course of these 12 months, they would still be in a, a really shitty position and that's assuming the highest end figure here. If they really are down to 3,000 shells a day that they're firing, this would only put them back up to the five to 6,000 shells a day range, which is still losing. That's still a losing war, at least if we're starting with 8,000 a day, and then you beef that up by 2,777, now you, you, you're competing. Now you're able to compete with the Russians. But if their numbers are, have really fallen off like that, and they're anywhere from three to 5,000 shells a day, or if they're at 5,000, well, if they're at 5,000, you get them this, and it puts them at the 8,000 shells a day. And the Russians are firing 20 to 40,000? This is, even if they get this, Ukraine is still going to be outgunned by a very large margin. Ukraine would be firing... 11,000, just under 11,000 shells a day at the highest end estimate that we can give them, as opposed to Russia's 20 to 40,000 shells a day. And there's, and in even this, there's just no guarantee that such amounts of support can be sustained. 
let alone that the million shells are even going to manifest themselves. We, we don't we don't even know if they're actually going to get the, the million shells. And we certainly don't know if they're going to get it evenly over the course of the 12 months. They could get nothing until the fall. So there's no guarantee they're even going to get the million shells. There's no idea or semblance of how those shells are going to come in and in what numbers and what time frames you're looking at here. And even then, if and if they get the 1 million shells, there's no guarantee they're going to be able to sustain that support. Because at this point, the Europeans are buying the shells from other countries. And other countries only have so much to give. I mean, look at who the manufacturers of the weapons are. That's where the essentially infinite supplies are going to be from. But you look at the manufacturers of these weapons and ammunition, it's predominantly the U.S., Russia, China, Iran, India, Europe, South Korea, and Israel. In a modern war, and I bring up the manufacturers because in a modern war, you need you need industry to make weapons, the weapons of war. And most of the industrialized countries who can do that are already spoken for with NATO. And now since the ammunition, since, uh, since the ammunition is supposed to go to Ukraine, that obviously takes Russia and China off the table as well. They are not going, Russia and China are not going to find them. They're not going to find Europeans putting in orders for arms purchases from them. They're, that's just not going to happen. And they're not going to go through with it either. So what's left of the pool isn't very big. They are not very large producers, and even if they were, they're they're not they're not going to just they're not just going to forfeit their arsenals to Ukraine, even if the Europeans pay them to. Ukraine will get some ammunition. Whether or not they'll get the million shells is completely up for debate. They will get something, and that something will matter. Is just. We have no idea if it's going to be the million. We, perhaps they get more than that. But whatever it is, it's not going to be sustainable. Because at this point, you're talking about tapping the the warehouses of every other country who has artillery instead of producing more because there is no production in the West. We've deindustrialized ourselves, and now we're fighting an industrialized war against an industrialized power, but we have no industry. So this support can't be sustained even if it does manifest. So Ukraine, again, is going to get some ammunition from this, but it will not change, in my opinion, it will not change the outcome of this war, which for Ukraine and all of NATO will be defeat, crushing and decisive defeat. But we shall see, because only time will tell. But that, my lovely listeners, is all that I have for you today. I do hope you've enjoyed today's broadcast on my geopolitical podcast. The world is changing. The multipolar world order is rising. And we are going to have fun watching it together. Now, I've been your host, Haishan Wade, and you've been listening to This Week in Geopolitics. So till we meet again next Monday, servus.